Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Um, I have a sheet. Uh, it's an article that I copied from The Federalist. It's on your table. You can read that on your own. Written by a young woman, Ellie Reynolds. And I'll just make a quick comment, and then we'll move on. Um, the people who really like Roe v. Wade and don't want it overturned, and she's got her finger on it, is the men. It's not the women. It's the men who don't want it overturned. Because with Roe v. Wade, a man can be totally irresponsible, never held responsible for anything. He loves it. He absolutely loves it. So I'll be very frank. So when a man and a woman are together, and she says, did you bring the condom? No, I thought you did. Do you have one? No. Well, there's always an abortion. You can always get an abortion, honey. The men love this. So she's right on target with her article, check it out. So I don't know if we have our SWAT team ready to go today to guard the doors as far as watching for protesters, but that's coming to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations as well. Um, the people who are protesting, you know, the supposed overturn of Roe v. Wade, they just, they just don't know what we believe, but when they figure it out, they'll start protesting our congregations as well. So just be ready for that. Now, um, just to, to tie up a loose end on how I finished last week, remember last week we talked about what you need for baptism is God's word and water, Lord's Supper, God's word, bread and wine. And remember, faith does not make baptism baptism. Faith does not make the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper. What makes baptism baptism, what makes the Lord's Supper Lord's Supper is the word of God. In, Ma in baptism's case, Matthew 28. In Lord's Supper case, Matthew 26 and the parallels. All right, so what does faith do? Faith simply receives what God gives. So as you believe, so you have. So the pastor can baptize you with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're baptized whether you believe or not. Now, if you don't believe, well, then you don't get the benefits. That's why Mark 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Faith doesn't make the baptism a baptism, but faith receives the gift of it and the benefits. Similarly with the Lord's Supper. A person can come to the Lord's Supper and they might not believe anything that Jesus says about it. Do they eat and drink the Lord's body and blood? Yep. But they don't get the benefits of it. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I hope you looked that up because I whetted your appetite. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. And he says, that's why some of you are weak and sick and some of you are even dying. So that side note, that's why we're very concerned as Christians to make sure that when people come to the Lord's Supper, by the way, we want people to come to the Lord's Supper, we do, but we want them to eat and drink beneficially and that's why we take the time to give them instruction. All right, that's to tie up those loose ends. Any questions about that? All right, more Old Testament Bible stories, now Isaiah 7. You should have the sheet in front of you on the table. This is a magnificent story. Now, um, I'm going to take... A, I need the uh, timeline. Any extra copies of the timeline with the kings and all that jazz? Please. I need one of those. So you've got two sheets. You've got the Isaiah 7 sheet with the picture of the nativity of our Lord. And then you've got the timeline to give you the perspective of when is when's this taking place. So you've got a king. His name is Ahaz. So look at the sheet. See his name? Left-hand column towards the bottom. See where it says kings of Judah and then go down. Left-hand column, kings of Judah. Do you see him down there? See his dates? 730, this is his reign. 
735 to 715 BC. So that gives you a clue of when he reigned. Remember that the kingdom of Israel was split in two after the death of Solomon. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. But you have that division already uh, with Saul, the first king of Israel, because Saul was from the north. Then David takes over. He's from the south. And you can read 2 Samuel to find out all these conflicts between northerners and southerners in Israel. <laughs> you've, got, you've got this split already, even when David is king. Okay? But that's another story. But this gives you some idea of the time frame. Any questions about that? All right, so look at the sheet with the nativity of our Lord on the picture there. Isaiah 7, we'll read the verses. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah. Remember, when you read Isaiah 6, we're told when Uzziah died, and that's when God called Isaiah to be a preacher. Son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Rezin, the king of Syria. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. That'd be northern kingdom. Came up to Jerusalem, that'd be southern to wage war against it. So they're going to they're wage war against Ahaz and the southern kingdom. That's the northern kingdom king and the king of Syria. Got that? So to repeat, Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Israel. Rezin is the king of Syria. And Pekah is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern king of Israel and Syria, are gang, they're going to gang up on the southern kingdom. Now you'd panic if you're king. This would be paramount to like... Just run with it. It'd be, like, it'd be like the President of the United States finding out that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin gather together to fight against the United States of America. Can you say panic? Yeah. Okay. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. Now verse 2. When the house of David was told, that's the southern kingdom, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz... And the heart of his people, I love this language, shook as the trees of the forest shake in a Nebraska wind. <laughs> a great plains wind. Sorry, I added that. But you, I can't stand the wind anymore. It's driving me insane. We've got to have a break. In any event, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and She'er Jajub, your son, at the end of the conduit, of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful. Now notice what he says. Does, does Isaiah say, now make sure you got your army all straightened out, get all your armaments ready to go. What's he say? Be quiet. Do not fear. In other words, don't do anything. <laughs> now if you're the king, you're saying, this guy's an idiot. But it's don't do anything. And why, not do, why, why don't do anything? Well, we got more than that in a minute. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord. So don't do anything. Just be quiet. Don't be afraid. Why? Because there's a promise made. It shall not stand. And it, it shall not come to pass. 
For the head of Syria is Damascus, that's the city. And the head of Damascus is Rezin, that's the king. And within 65 years, now page 2, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, is Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. That's the king of the northern kingdom. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, that means the grave, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, if you know, if you, know, if you remember your Old Testament Sunday school lessons, or if you've studied the Old Testament, you know that Ahaz, religiously speaking, is an apostate. He's not a believer. He could care less what God says. He could care less what God's word says. He's a total apostate. That is one who's fallen away. And now here he acts religious. Oh, I won't put the Lord to the test. When God says, here, ask for a sign. Oh, I, now all of a sudden he gets religion. Well, I'm not going to test the Lord. You know, everybody's hearing that and saying, what a joke he is. All right, so he's not going to ask the Lord, not going to put the Lord to the test. Verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what's the sign? Here it is. You all know this from Christmas. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us, okay? He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, remember the northern kingdom king and the king of Syria, they will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, that'd be the Nile River, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, that's the Euphrates River, with the king of Assyria, that's from the north. So if you got your geography, that's from the north of Israel. The Euphrates River is north of Israel, and Assyria is going to come from the north. The head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. That is to say, when the northern kingdom of Assyria comes and wipes out the northern kingdom, there's not going to be anything left. Can you say, like Ukraine? Okay. With bow and arrows a man will come here, for all the land will be briars and thorns. 
And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Now, based upon this prophecy of the coming Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 7:14, I want to make some comments here. Okay? So I want to begin by debunking something that you've heard all your life and you probably believe it and you need to stop believing it if you do. And here it's, it's attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin supposedly said this, and you've all heard it, and if you believe it, you need to stop believing it. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. So let me, page two. You've heard it a million times. You've probably said it a million times yourself, especially when you're in some kind of desperate situation at home, at work, or some event in Elmwood, Murdoch, or at church. God helps those who help themselves. It sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds right, and it sounds salutary. Do all you can, and God will make it come out right. Work harder, and God will reward you with success. God helps those who help themselves. This is so cliche that we almost believe it as the proverbial truth, and many people falsely believe that this proverb actually comes from the Bible. Well, it may be proverbial, but it is not from the Bible. <laughs> supposedly from Benjamin Franklin. It comes from our modern, enlightenment, optimistic view of mankind that says we are capable of accomplishing anything we set our minds to. It's moralism and legalism, pure and simple. It says that we are the measure of all things, and God is a God who puts His divine seal of approval on our plans and programs and picks up the slack after we've done all that we can do. That's the God of the workaholic, like me, the positive self-esteem movement. And you old-timers who remember Norman Vincent Peale and his magazine Guideposts, oh my goodness, when I first started as a pastor, even before I was a pastor, when I worked two summers at Trinity Lutheran Church in Lexington, Nebraska, one summer before Rob and I got married, and then the summer after I got married, before I went on Vicarage, almost everybody in the congregation, when I would go make visits in the homes in Trinity Lex, guess what magazine they had in their home? Guideposts. Guideposts. Throw it away. If you've subscribed to that, throw it away. Robert Schuller gave birth to this. Okay, he's a disciple of Norman Vincent Peale. Remember the hour of power with Robert Schuller? Oh my goodness. And most Missouri Senate people would listen to this program and thought it was just the cat's meow. He was a heretic. Let me illustrate real quickly. I'm going to sidebar this. Peel and Schuler. Schuler is a disciple of Peel. Self-esteem movement, where you're supposed to think positively about yourself all the time, because that's you know what. So Robert Schuler wrote a book called The New Reformation. Colon, self-esteem. Now I'm going to quote verbatim. <laughs> this tells you how much of a geek I am. I can quote verbatim from a book like this. He says that the reformation that the church needs is this. The church needs to stop talking about sin. And he meant it. And so it, you, if you want, I wouldn't recommend it, but if, if you want for fun, you can go back and look at all these Hour of Power programs from the Christ Cathedral. And never once does Robert Schuller ever say that I'm a sinner or you're a sinner. And what's at stake when you deny sin? 
You deny Jesus as the Savior of sinners. So would he talk about Jesus? Oh, sure he would, but not as the Savior of sinners and not as the one who died with all the sin of the world in his body, being, get, being damned with it, winning your salvation. That's totally off the radar screen. So what's, what's the point for Jesus? Jesus is just only an example to follow about how to be thinking better about yourself. Okay. So this God helps those who help themselves gets perpetuated big time by Peel and Schuler in America. The so-called Protestant work ethic, I'm reading again on the top of page three, and the self-help aids you can find online or on, at Christian bookstores, and it goes like this, I paraphrase. It's the Walt Disney kind of theology, the old Walt Disney kind of theology. Look deep, reach deep down into yourself. Seriously, watch all the old Walt Disney movies. The answer to the problem in every movie is what? Look deep inside yourself. <laughs> Never look outside of yourself, but the Christian theology is don't look inside yourself, look outside of yourself to him. I got to keep reading, I'll get way too carried away. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You've heard that a billion times, haven't you? Be all that you can be. You know, the army had that. That was their theme for a long time when I was growing up, you know? You're, you're shaking. You remember that, don't you? That probably convinced you. Anyway, and God's going to bless you for it. In other words, here's the, here's the kicker. God rewards those who deserve it. He helps those who've earned the right to his help. There's no loafers. There's no slackers on the Lord's welfare rolls because God only helps those who help themselves. Now, why are we so drawn to the bad theology of this cliche? Well, in part, it's because we're lazy. We're, we're in a microwave society. We prefer the quick, instant, simple solution to complex and messy problems. I suppose, sorry, Mrs. Kuhlman, but I suppose we could ask the local elementary math teacher at Trinity and she could tell you about all the students just wanting to give the easy answer without showing any of their work. <laughs> we would rather not struggle with the ambiguities of life, live by faith in God's promises, Romans 1. We would rather not struggle with the subtleties of God's word and all its tensions and paradoxes like the law and the gospel. We prefer simple, straightforward solutions couched in catchy cliches that tickle our ears, mesmerize our minds, and are easy to pass on to others. And secondly, we're too lazy to study the Bible ourselves to see if this cliche is actually true. Were we to open the Bible, we would discover that the cliche, God helps those who help themselves, is not only not in the Bible, in fact, it's unbiblical, as we'll see in a moment. Another reason we are drawn to cliches is that we're proud. We actually believe that such trite tidbits as God helps those who help themselves, we actually believe them. We really do think that we're doing the best we can. Who wouldn't believe that they've done all that they can do? And who wouldn't believe that God looks kindly on our very hard work, our blood, sweat, and tears, and can't help but give us an A for effort? Our sinful nature is very proud. The old Adam is proud of himself, his ingenuity, his industriousness, and independence. So fulfilled in what he can do when he puts his mind to it. The old Adam extols the self-made person, the one who does, who needs no help, who accepts no charity, who goes the extra mile all alone. The proud old Adam doesn't need or want the divine Good Friday, external, I mean externos, that's outside of ourselves, gift of salvation in Jesus. Instead, the old Adam wants motivation. He doesn't want to be repented. He doesn't want to be, he wants to be remunerated. 
He doesn't want God's mercy or forgiveness. He wants what he deserves or merits. He doesn't want to hear a preacher faithfully preach God's word. Instead, he wants pep talks like hour of power or guideposts or who's the current self-esteem guy in the United States? He's in Houston, Texas, Joel Osteen. And he's written a book that you probably have all heard about or somebody, somebody's got it in their library. Maybe you have it. If you do, burn it. Having your best life now. Okay? The main reason, next paragraph, the main reason we believe this and other horrible religious cliches is that the old Adam doesn't believe the promise of the Lord like this. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Psalm 50. Or, as we hear here in Psalm 46, be still. <laughs> be still. Don't do anything and know that I'm God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you, Jesus says in Matthew 7. Our sinful nature mocks the biblical teaching that God, listen very carefully, that God is the helper of who? The helpless. That God actually helps those who cannot help themselves. Look at the footnote at the bottom of page 3. Romans 5. Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Go. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Notice, there's no such thing as God helps those who help. It's the opposite. It is the very opposite of the Benjamin Franklin cliche. Let's keep reading. Ready? Go. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Colossians 1. Next one, please. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless. I hope that's helpful for you. Okay. Now page four. I contend then, after this long introduction, my front porch got really big. Now let's go inside the house. <laughs> you understand what I mean when I say that, don't you? Sometimes my sermon, the front porch, the introduction is so long that we never get in the house. Uh, that's what I mean here. So here, let's go inside, shall we? I would contend that King Ahaz is a classic example of God helps those who help himself. Uh, for example, um, King Ahaz, he takes control of his life by burning his son in the fire and sacrificing him to the god Molech, as pictured on page 4. Now Ahaz's immediate problems were Pekah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Rezin, the king of Syria. These two kings, as we read, had formed a nasty military alliance. They set their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah, leaving King Ahaz and his people, as the text says, like the trees of the forest shaken by the Nebraska wind. <laughs> Ahaz believed in helping himself. So what did he do? So I'm reviewing this history with you. He made alliances with Assyria and Egypt. He bribed the Assyrian king. So we heard Syria and Assyria, two different countries here at this time. So he bribes the Assyrian king. And the Assyrian king's name is Tiglath-Pileser. 
And how did he bribe him? Check out what he does. He takes the silver and gold from the temple in Jerusalem. That'd be like Kuhlman taking the offerings on a Sunday morning and taking all of your offerings to buy off somebody so I can save my own skin. Or let me put it to you this way. Better, better analogy would be Kuhlman taking the communion vessels and selling them. Make sense? Okay. So, he sold the temple furnishings, and that picture there kind of illustrates that on page four. Now page five. He set up an Assyrian altar in the temple courtyard, and he offered sacrifices on it. Now, by doing this, he, he desecrates God's house. Remember, God's house is the temple. This is where God promises to dwell among his people, to take care of them. And by selling that stuff off, and then by setting up a pagan altar and offering sacrifices to pagan gods, he desecrates God's house or profanes it. This is an abomination. And brothers and sisters, this is precisely why God then sends the Assyrians and destroys the northern kingdom. And then eventually God will send the Babylonians and destroy the southern kingdom because of their idolatry. Middle of page five. He shoved the Lord's altar off to one side. And when you do that, you're shoving the Lord out of the way as well. Let me make a comment about this. I don't know. See, I'm the geek. I'm the world geek. It was just a few years ago. <clears throat> I'm doing this off the top of my head so I can be corrected on the, the details, but here's the gist of it. In Sweden, and Sweden is a nominally Lutheran country. Remember, Sweden accepted the Lutheran Reformation in the 16th century, and it became the state religion. Now, I said Sweden now is nominally Lutheran. There are hardly any, hardly any faithful Lutherans in Sweden anymore. They're all apostate, almost all of them. And just recently, I believe it was, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm doing this off the top of my head, but it was either a pastor in the Church of Sweden or a bishop, or maybe it was an archbishop. I forget which one, but nonetheless, here's the point. It was emphasized that the, the churches... The church buildings, which are set apart and consecrated for what purpose? A church building is consecrated. When, so, for example, when Trinity Lutheran Church was built in 1892, there was a dedication ceremony in which the building and all of its furnishings were set apart by God's word and prayer, consecrated for what purpose? For the divine service, for people to be baptized and taught, for, for the Lord's Supper to be given, for the word of God to be preached. Got it? God's house, for God's things to be going on. That's why church buildings are holy places, because the word of God goes on there. Holy word, holy place. Well, in Sweden, all of a sudden, these nominally Lutherans were saying, you know what? We can share our church buildings with unbelievers, and they can hold their services in our, in our buildings. And who, who were the unbelievers that they were going to let in? The Muslims. Now, by doing that, they desecrated and profaned the place. And it's not God-pleasing. Okay. So, in America, you're going to be tempted to do that. 
You're going to say, oh, Trinity Lutheran needs to open its building up for Muslim services, for Sikh services, for Hindu services, or even for the uh, Universalist Unitarians. And even, just watch out for it. We don't do that. Okay. Now, so when Ahaz does this, this is a huge abomination. So he burned incense. I'm reading again on page 5, middle of the page. He burned incense on every high place and holy site. And as I said earlier, he burned his own son as sacrifice to the foreign god Molech. Molech. You can read 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 for all of the history. I just paraphrased it for you here. So my point is, is that Ahaz did everything to do what? To help himself. Whatever seemed to work, he did it. And when the prophet Isaiah caught up with King Ahaz, he was inspecting the waterworks for the city of Jerusalem. Now page 6. Isaiah's words from the Lord to Ahaz was for the king dun, da, da, to do nothing. <laughs> that is so scandalous. Yes, please. Well, it is through Isaiah. It is through. So when it says the Lord said, it's through Isaiah. Okay. Correct. And it's always through the prophet. So it's actually that is correct. So when the text says the Lord spoke to Ahaz, it's through the prophet. So the, what's the New Testament example of this? Luke 10. You read Luke 10 when Jesus sends out the 70 to preach and they come back and they report on what's happened. And what does Jesus say in Luke 10, 16? He who hears you, namely the preacher that I just sent, hears me. Well, Jesus didn't make that up. That's the way God's always been doing it. So when he sends Isaiah to preach his word, God is speaking through Isaiah. And thus, when the text says, the Lord said, it's always through the prophet. Yeah. By the way, side note, just for fun. So when you read Genesis and you, you read, the Lord said to, the Lord said to, it's always through a person. More on that on another study. That's another fascinating story. Like, for example, when the Lord told Noah to build the ark, this isn't the Bill Cosby way of talking. Remember the Bill Cosby skit? The Noah skit, you don't remember that? Well, you'll just have to Google it. But, but Bill Cosby, when he did the, the comedic thing of Noah and God talking, the impression is, is that God speaks to Noah from way up there, just directly to Noah. Okay? That is not worked. God actually used a preacher to speak to Noah to build the ark. Do your genealogy in the book of Genesis and you'll figure it out. That's another study. So that is your question. Okay, anything else? Okay, let's continue then. So Ahaz is to do nothing, which is, which is the Lord's way of saying, trust me, I'll take care of you. In effect, to be still and let God be God. So in Isaiah 7, 4, be careful, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, namely the Syrian king, and the northern king of Israel. They've devised their plot against you, Ahaz, but they will not succeed. In fact, as the text says, within 65 years, the great northern kingdom of Israel, which is called Ephraim, will be so shattered that there won't even be a people, as it said in verse 8. 
And God did that. He sent the Assyrians to destroy them. Let's keep reading. That was God's solemn solemn promise. Ahaz had God's word on it. The scheming of Rezin and Pekah will come to nothing. What Ahaz feared the most had already been dealt with when? When God promised. All that King Ahaz had to do was do nothing, to stand firm in faith, to trust God's promise, to wait for the Lord who helps those who cannot help themselves. Isaiah, however, warned, if you don't stand firm, you won't stand at all. Now, God even offers Ahaz a sign, a visible sign to go with the word of promise. Now, this is how God always works. For example, I mentioned Noah. Let's go back to Noah. When God makes a promise, he usually gives signs attached to them, physical signs. So with Noah, God made a promise after the flood. What was the promise? I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And he put the rainbow in the sky to remind you that every time you see the rainbow, you're reminded of that promise. God does this all the time. So I feel quite daring. I'll call it a sacramental sign, if you will, to strengthen Ahaz's trust in God's word, a tangible token that God meant what he promised. So ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Isaiah invited Ahaz to name his sign and the Lord would grant it. But as we read, Ahaz refused. He wouldn't ask. That is to say, he would not be dependent on the Lord. I can't emphasize that enough, so I'm going to say it again. He will not be dependent on the Lord. He's going to be an independent contractor, to use the business language. Though Ahaz, in his refusal, sounds very pious, like all the Lutherans, you know, who won't come to church with all kinds of piety, who refuse to be given to, even though the Lord commands it, the third commandment, and adds the promise of life, forgiveness, and salvation. You've got all the passages listed there. He speaks out of sinful pride, that is Ahaz. Ahaz would not ask for the offered sign from the Lord because he had no need for the Lord's help. Let's not forget that unbelief refuses the signs of the Lord's goodness, and tries to go it alone without them. Like, for example, who needs the signs of the gospel today, like baptism, absolution, preaching, Lord's Supper, when you've smugly got things covered for yourself? Because after all, God helps those who help themselves. You see where this cliche goes bad? In any event. Well, the preacher, the prophet Isaiah, speaks the word or the sign anyway. After all, it must be spoken. And the Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The sign of Emmanuel meant that within nine months, the time it takes to conceive and bear a child, Ahaz will know for certain that God was with them. Emmanuel will, as the text says, eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So within 12 or 13 years, the legal age of responsibility when a boy assumed to know the difference between right and wrong, Israel would be plundered, that's the northern kingdom, and there would be famine in the land. And that's precisely what happened. In 732 BC, Assyria began to attack Israel of the north, And 10 years later, in 722 B.C., nearly 12 years after Isaiah met Ahaz by the aqueduct of Jerusalem, 
Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, had fallen to the king of Assyria. Ahaz didn't trust God's word. He rejected the sign of Emmanuel. Instead, he turned to his own plans, to the king of Assyria and to the Syrian idols that were ultimately his undoing. When the going got tough, Ahaz turned to other gods. So I referenced this earlier. I give you a, a passage from 2 Chronicles. It summarizes the entire reign of King Ahaz in this way. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. See, when you believe that God helps those who help themselves, you don't become faithful to the Lord, you become even more unfaithful. Page 7. Now let's push this story some more. I'm going to dare to do it. For our being repented, because hang on tight, guess who's in all of us? King Ahaz. It's called our old Adam, who doesn't trust God or his word who will not cling to God's promises, but instead to self-help cliches, who refuses the signs of God's goodness. When our safety is threatened, you name it, fill in the blank, the old Adam sends us running to things that offer safety and security like cash, power, position, sex, pleasures, possessions. And what do we do? We like Ahaz, we make deals in time of trouble. We make treaties, we make alliances with whomever offers us power and control of our lives. Old Adam sacrifices to gods that promise to deliver the goods. Old Adam sets up altars in the church, in our homes, and in our hearts. Old Adam wants to smooth alternatives to the rough road, wants smooth alternatives to the rough road of repentance, the cross of death and resurrection. Old Adam prefers to deal with sin. And here's the biggie of the 21st century and the late 20th century by claiming what? Victimhood. This is, this is the buzzword of our day, victimhood. That is to say, I'm not responsible for anything I do, say, whatever. I'm a victim. How dare you even question that? You understand what I'm talking about? Okay. Or by asserting that sin is only a little flaw that needs a Band-Aid, as if he's the solution instead of the Good Friday blood and death of Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that the way of self-help is a false and doomed way. I, I contend it's hellacious. Hellish. Ahaz's solution turned out to be his hellacious ruin. The same king that saved him from Rezin and Pekah, Tiglath-Pileser, this is the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. Remember, he tried to bribe this guy with the gold and silver from the temple? Tried to bribe Tiglath-Pileser? Well, Tiglath-Pileser turned on him. That should teach us all something if you ever elected President of the United States. Now, you can't buy off certain people when they don't want to be bought off. <clears throat> he turned against him, and the gods to whom he sacrificed, including his own son, couldn't save him. Ahaz learned that God doesn't help those who help themselves. In fact, who needs God when you can help yourself? So listen carefully. Once again, I repeat for emphasis. God helps those who can't help themselves. He does what we cannot do. He overcomes sin and death where we are overcome by them. He does battle with Satan where we make alliances and treaties. He fights for us where we would surrender. He conquers where we are conquered. So Emmanuel then is the sign that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Emmanuel is virgin born. He has a mother but no earthly father. He's conceived without the agency of a man because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit 
and born of the Virgin Mary. This is the Lord's doing. He is the promise. This is Jesus we're talking about, in case you were wondering. He is the promised seed in Genesis 3.15, through whose bruised heel would come the head-crushing victory over Satan and his lies. Because Emmanuel is virgin-born, Jesus, that is, without a human father, he is without inherited, the inherited sin of Adam, in case you were wondering about that. I get asked that question a lot. Jesus is woman's offspring, as the Christmas hymn says, pure and fresh. Remember that? He is the sinless substitute, the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember? The angel Gabriel came to Mary, a young virgin girl engaged to a man named Joseph, and he said, the Lord is with you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. That word sign spoken through the prophet Isaiah had now finally come to fulfillment in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God had come to be with his own people, to be with us in the most profound way. Emmanuel, Jesus, God is with us in order to be for us, as Matthew says, to save his people from their sins. Yes, Jesus is Emmanuel. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, Isaiah 7:14 is fulfilled in who? In the Lord Jesus Christ. So in him, God is with us as God has never before been with us. In the flesh of Jesus, you have true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and he's also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. And what you have then with Jesus is you have divinity and humanity united in one person. We speak of Jesus then as the God-man. That marvelous union of God and man in the God incarnate, and incarnate literally means enfleshed, enfleshed, is the heart of our celebration of Christmas. God and man are reconciled. They're at peace with one another. Remember, that's what the angels proclaimed. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. It's when Jesus is born, there's now peace with God, okay? In Jesus, then, there's mercy there's forgiveness, life, and salvation from the womb that conceived him to the tomb that received him. Jesus is God with us to save us. He's with us in our conception, in our birth, our infancy, our terrible twos. He's with us in our childhood and teen years, our adulthood and our seniority. I'm speaking about myself there. He's with us in our suffering and sickness, in our joy and success. He's with us in our, even in our death and our burial. He is with us all the days until the end of days, as he said in Matthew 28. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And as Psalm 46 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. With Emmanuel Jesus then, God with us, there's sure to be controversy because Emmanuel Jesus turns our world upside down. No, properly speaking, he turns our world right side up again. However, we've been standing on our heads for so long that we don't know up from down. Joseph was called to be Jesus' stepfather. His bride-to-be was pregnant with the promise of God. Joseph wavered as any man would have wavered. You remember that? He doubted and decided to call off the wedding. And so being just, he decided to keep the entire matter secret and let his beloved but pregnant fiancé marry the rightful father of the child. But again, the angel interfered with Joseph's plans, intervened. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, 
because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This one is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Now, finally, then Joseph believed God's word. He believed the sign of Emmanuel. And what did he do? He took Mary home to be his wife. But what's interesting here is for the entire pregnancy, everything was postponed in their lives. Now, when, so I don't know if you remember when I preached midweek Advent, my theme was how God interrupts our lives. You know, you've got all your plans. I've got all my plans. Mary and Joseph had all their plans. And God interrupted. And how did they react, Mary and Joseph? Did they say no to God? No. They let their lives, and I'll just, I'll just be even, I'll push it even further. They let their lives and all their plans be ruined. We should learn from them. Really, we should learn from them about that. When God interrupts your life, let it be. To quote John Lennon, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Okay. <laughs> okay, so learn from them. Let me keep going. The wedding, they, their wedding plans had to be totally rearranged. Their expectations had to be totally adjusted. Their priorities had to be shifted. We don't do that at all in our life. I'm speaking in general to make my point. So Jesus says, eat and drink my body and blood. And Christians then will do what with this interruption? We will, we will change our plans. I, you know, I'm speaking in general here. Okay. So learn from Mary and Joseph. All because God is with us. Emmanuel in Mary and Joseph's life took center stage. Mary and Joseph had no formal wedding that we know of. No week-long reception that was the custom of, our, of their day. Now, that would just crush your hearts, ladies, wouldn't it? It'd ruin your life if you couldn't have the wedding you planned and the reception you planned. It would ruin your life. But they adjusted. I'm pushing it really hard. I hope, I hope this is somewhat helpful because I have to learn that as well. They didn't have a romantic honeymoon until when? After Jesus was born. Matthew carefully notes this. Joseph had no union with Mary until she gave birth to Jesus. They did not have intimacy during that entire time. They put that on hold. Would you? I don't think I could have. As a man, that had been tough for me. But they did. Okay? Mary might have been easy. Get away, get away. But for a man, it's a whole different ballgame. You men know what I'm talking about. City of women, any of it. So no one must have it. No, Matthew includes that so that there's no doubt that Emmanuel was virgin born. That's why that's included there. That Joseph had no union with her. Until. Okay, so where Jesus, there's Emmanuel, God with us, the helper of those who can't help themselves. In Jesus, God is with us. In his word of forgiveness, in the water and word of baptism, in the bread and wine of his supper. He is with us to give us to share in his birth. After all, in baptism, we're born again. John 3, Titus 3. I dare to say that in baptism, we are even virgin born. That is to say, we too, because my point is, is that in baptism, you're born again. Paul says in Titus 3 that God saved us through the washing, listen carefully, the washing of rebirth and renewal. How? By the Holy Spirit. So I'm pushing this to the hilt. So we who are baptized are virgin born, if you will. We're new creations in Christ. 
and we're born of Holy Mother Church, the mother of all who believe. Jesus is with us to feed us with his body and blood, the same body born of the Virgin Mary, laid in a manger, crucified on the cross, raised from the grave, and glorified at the Father's right hand in majesty. In Jesus, God is with us so that we may be with him. This is the greatest salvational news you can ever hear. But there's more to come. With Jesus, there's always more. There's never enough of him being Emmanuel for you. Because on the last day, he will come in again in glory to be with us visibly, to raise you from the dead, and to give all who believe in him eternal life. And that's why the Christmas hymn, we sing it with gusto. I've got the words, you know, from O Little Town of Bethlehem. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us. O Lord, Emmanuel. Next time you sing that song, I hope you remember this Bible study. <laughs> Any questions? Well, we're going to continue in Isaiah next week. So fasten your seatbelts. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, 